Go. Gabby Hannah needs to be stopped. So does Trisha fucking pay <laughs> Let's get real. Yeah, but Trisha's against Gabby, which I support, but I'm also against Trisha these days, so I don't know. You can be against both. It's pretty easy to just say I'm against both. They are the same person. They really are. They're not that different. Ethan's mom was right. Ethan's mom. Donna Klein. We stand. Um, we simply must. <laughs> welcome to Spooky Show. Welcome. It, this is not for enemies. I wish. Okay. No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm glad no. that's over. That needed to end. I don't want it to come back. I don't want Ethan to get for another chance. But anyway, this is spooky show indeed. The spooky what is show. It? Oh yeah, the spookiest show in the. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ew, you were gonna ask what it is. Yeah. It's the spookiest show of the entire world of the universe of life in the world in the universe of ever. ever. Yeah. It's raining outside, so if you hear anything, sorry. And if it thunders or lightnings or whatever, like. You know, you might hear that. It's, It'll just uh, add to the spook. like a motherfucker around here. Um, before we get into it, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And. If you love me. Tune in to the uh, live show on Friday. Yeah, this Friday we're doing a live spooky show event at twitch.tv slash mindsugar at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's correct. Um, you can also email the show for suggestions. So I got a lot of suggestions to do more conspiracy and paranormal stuff. So that's why last week was conspiracy and this week is paranormal. Ooh. Harrison, the story today is so weird. Oh, hell yeah. You know, I love weird shit. Yeah, this is really weird. And I think you're going to like it because it's about actors. Oh, really? It's about the ghost light? The famous ghost light? No. Okay. Oh, yeah, you talked about that with with Faith, right? Yeah, we did Haunted Broadway. Yeah. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the alleged haunted house that once belonged to American actress Jean Harlow. Oh, cool. That's very cool. Yeah, in the late 1920s and early 1930s. All right. So the house is currently at 9820 Easton Drive, Los Angeles, California. And there's also another house on Clubview Street or Drive in L.A. that Jean owned that's said to be haunted as well. And I think a lot of these hauntings happen, like, in both of the houses, but we're just going to talk about the hauntings overall. All right. But to start, going to share a little bit about who Jean Harlow was, and then we'll get into what happened and, you know, while she was living there, and we'll dive into what people who have lived there afterwards experienced. Cool. So... Jean Harlow was actually born Harleen Harlow Carpenter on March 3rd, 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. Her father was a dentist and was pretty middle class, and her mother was the daughter of a wealthy real estate broker, so she was well off. But um, Jean's marriage, Jean's mom's marriage to Jean's father was an arranged marriage. And it said that it wasn't very happy, so her mother filed for divorce in 1922, and she got sole custody of Jean Harlow, and Jean did not really see her dad after that. And Jean was definitely doted on by her mother, and I can't tell if it was in a good way or a bad way. Or like in a a weird uh, Stockholm-y way. Yeah, because apparently Jean's mother was extremely protective and was reported to have instilled a sense in her daughter that she owed everything she had to her Ugh. and she would say in multiple interviews like she was always all mine my yeah. little angel so my that little seems pet. a little toxic to me right 
So Jean's, I would agree. I would agree. I would and, agree. And Jean's mother was actually the one who wanted to be a star. Oh, like, yeah. See, that's always a lethal combination. Mom who wanted to be a star, kid who has some ability. Lethal. Lethal. Well, yeah, well, Jean didn't really want to be, but Jean's, Jean's mom did. And in 1923, when she was 34, she took Jean and they moved to Hollywood together. But Jean's mother was told she was too old to be a star. So they're living in California and their finances start to dwindle. So they move back to Kansas City, especially because Jean's grandfather, the rich real estate broker, said that he would disown his daughter if they didn't, oh, not disown, disinherit his daughter if they didn't return. So they, of course, moved back for a bit before moving to Lake Forest, Illinois, where Jean attended school at Ferry Hall School. And while she was there, she met 19-year-old Chuck Fermont McGrew III, who was Ooh. an heir to Mont a large... McGrew III. McGrew. McGrew IV. No, is it Chuck Fermont McGrew III? Chuck Fermont, Chuck Fermont McGrew. <laughs> Thank you. That's his name. <laughs> and so he was an heir to a large fortune, and they married in 1927 when Jean was 16. So two months after the wedding in 1928, Chuck McGrew turned 21 and received a part of his inheritance. So the couple left Chicago and moved to L.A., where Jean thrived as a wealthy socialite. And during this time, Chuck and Jean, like, they both didn't work, and it's said that they were both just heavy drinkers. Hmm. Living it up. So how Jean got into acting is really interesting, actually. So like I said, it wasn't her who wanted to be an actress ever, really. Like, it was her mother. So in 1928, while living in L.A., Jean became friends with a young, aspiring actress named Rosalie Roy. And since Rosalie didn't own a car, she asked Jean to drive her to Fox Studios for an appointment. And while waiting for Rosalie, Jean was noticed, and she was approached by Fox executives, but she told them she wasn't interested. So, she was given letters of introduction to Central Casting anyway, and a few days later, Rosalie bet Jean that she didn't have the nerve to go in for an audition. And by this time, Jean's mother had followed her out to L.A., so since she didn't want to lose the bet, and her mother was like, girl, you better get on that stage. I mean... Right now. You better get in front of those cameras. Smile, darling. You're going to be a star. <laughs> she went to Central Casting. Um, so Jean appeared in her first film, Honor Bound, in 1928 as an extra for $7 a day. Then yeah. she played small parts in films like Moran of the Marines and the Charlie Chase. And in December 1928, Jean Harlow signed a five-year contract with Hal Roach Studios for $100 a week. But in March 1929, apparently she tore up that contract and told Hal Roach that it was breaking up her marriage. the hell? So in June 1929, Jean and her husband separated and she went to live with her mother and I guess continued to act as an extra until she got her first speaking part in The Saturday Night Kid and Jean and her husband divorced officially in 1929. So the movie that made her a star was called Hell's Angels, directed by Howard Hughes in, the late, in late 1929. And he had her sign a five-year, $100 per week contract on October 29th, sorry, October 24th, 1929. And during filming, Jean Harlow met MGM executive Paul Byrne. Okay. 
So he comes back into play in a second. But in the meantime, Jean is having some ups and downs in her career, as one does as an actor. Sure. Her performance in Hell's Angels got very mixed reviews, but eventually she was cast in her first Columbia Pictures film called Platinum Blonde, which was how Jean is pretty much now known as, like, the Platinum Blonde star or, like, the original Blonde blonde Bombshell. So hard to say. That's how I know that name. You you knew it? I knew her name because I knew uh, that there was somebody that wasn't Marilyn Monroe that was named the original Blonde Bombshell. Yes, yes, it's Jean Harlow. But there was a bit of a scandal with this, like... So Jean was cast. In what way, Kate? <laughs> Jean was cast for that part because she had platinum blonde hair, but she would deny over and over that her hair was bleached. But then it was like, I guess, uh, leaked that it was indeed achieved with a weekly application of ammonia, Clorox be- bleach, and <laughs> Lux soap flakes. Oh come on! So many females began dyeing their oh, hair. Oh come the hell on! To match Gene and Howard Hughes' team even organized a series of platinum blonde clubs across the nation, offering a prize of $10,000 to any beautician who can match Gene's shade. Whoa. But no one could. <laughs> so, like, that, talk about a good deal. Talk about having someone who is one of a million, baby. Yeah, and it was also, like, good publicity for the movie. Right, and it worked. Course. And Jean became known as, like, you know, the platinum blonde star. Bombshell, the, the original blonde bombshell. OG blonde bombshell. Some could say. Okay, so enter Paul Byrne once okay. again. He arranged with Howard, Howard Hughes to use Jean and MGM's movie Beast of the City. And since then, he was basically like, sorry, Howard, Jean belongs to MGM now. <laughs> so. Sorry, sweetheart, your days are numbered. Yeah, she, like, I guess ended the contract and went to work for MGM instead of Howard Hughes. So after filming, Paul Byrne booked a 10-week personal appearance tour on the East Coast, and to the surprise of many, including Jean, she packed every theater, and her popularity, popularity was just growing, and the tour was extended by six weeks in February 1932. And this is when Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow started dating... And Paul basically worked his magic into getting her to star in, like, multiple MGM films as lead roles. Such as? Do you have any of them here? Oh, no. <laughs> well, then I quit. I mean, they're all ones that I don't even really I'm know. I'm just, I'm just joshing. Yeah. But the couple announced their engagement in June 1932 and married on July 2nd, 1932. And this marriage was, like... A shock to many people, mostly because Paul Byrne was 22 years older than her. Whoa! And in my that's research, Hollywood, baby. In my research, it said was considered unattractive. Huh. So after they got married, that's just you know that's according to the research, of course. Yes, according to the research. After they got married, Paul bought an extravagant Bavarian home at 9820 Easton Drive in LA for Jean. Where they lived not so happily. Oh no, do tell. So it's rumored that Paul and Jean had issues in their marriage from the beginning, including Paul having an affair with his secretary, Irene Harrison. (gasps) That's your name. My first name's not Irene, and my last name's not Harrison, so I think I'm okay. (laughs) Okay. So I think I'm okay. The marriage only lasted two months. Unless I'm not. Let me know in the comments. Okay. The marriage only lasted two months. 
Wow. Okay. Obviously that. built to last. And before they didn't get divorced, something terrible happened. Someone die? Yeah. Mysteriously? Yes. On September oh, 5th. Spookily, one might say. September 5th, 1923, Paul's butler found Paul dead in his room, and he was found nude with a bullet hole through his head. Whoa. So authorities found a suicide note, apparently, that was written by him, and it said, are you ready? I'm going to read it. Yeah. It's very weird. So it said, dearest dear, (laughs) unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. And then under that, it says, you understand that last night was only a comedy. The fuck? Yeah, what the fuck? So, to police and the grand jury, Jean's only statement was that she knew nothing. And so she was made executor of her husband's estate by the Californian judge, and Jean never spoke, spoke publicly about, like, what happened. And I will say here that there were some rumors about Paul Byrne possibly being gay. Um, And, you know, in that time period, I don't know. So Jean went on to continue to be successful and remarry and divorce and date again and whatnot. And then in January 1937, Jean took a trip to Washington, D.C. and got influenza, but she recovered. But then in March 1937... She was starring in a film called Saratoga when she got sepsis after a multiple wisdom tooth extraction. Whoa. And she recovered from that, but then they started filming Saratoga again in April 1937 when she was finally better. But then on May 20th, 1937, during filming, she began to feel sick again. She had like fatigue, nausea, fluid retention, and stomach pain. So she went home and didn't seem to improve at all. And on June 7th, 1937, a doctor diagnosed her with inflamed gallbladder, but it became clear very quickly that it was actually kidney failure. So she died at the age of 26 Whoa. on June 7th, 1937 from kidney failure. Just That's so really weird. Crazy. Yeah. So now you probably like get to the paranormal part and here we are. She haunt the house? Well, the home on Easton Drive where Jean Harlow and Paul Byrne lived, is reportedly still haunted. It's a two-story Bavarian-style mansion with life-size gutter spouts, wooden carvings of various silent screen stars like Pickford, Fairbanks, and Valentino, and has a swimming pool and grand wooden staircase. And I, it also said in my research that after Jean passed away, the house was bought by like another family, of course, and two people died in the swimming pool. Whoa. And so the house was considered jinxed, but one man in particular didn't care. Who? And I'll tell you who. So in 1963, a celebrity hairstylist named Jay Sebring bought the former (laughs) Harlow home. Right? (laughs) Of course. There's no such thing as a coincidence. (laughs) Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course. So That's fucking all... crazy. Yeah. God damn. Yeah. What a good twist. I, I... actually did not. It's know. crazy, right? Like that ha- is a great. How this is like randomly connected to yeah. To do tell. Well, yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> if you don't know what me and Harrison are freaking out about, okay. So yeah, Jay Sebring bought the former Harlow home in 1963, and then Jay Sebring. That's so fucking crazy. I know. 
So then he began to date, and if you don't know where we're going, you might know now. He began to date actress Sharon Tate between 1964 and 1966. And Sharon Tate lived in the home of Sebring for most of their relationship, but later left him for director Roman Polanski. And the two remained, like, very good friends. They were still close. Also noted fucked up guy, Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski? Yeah. yeah. Oh. D- oh, okay. You, you, I, I'm going to make sure that I have 100% of the facts before I talk about Roman Polanski, but Roman Polanski is a fucked up guy. Okay, you want me to keep going? Yeah, keep going. Okay. So, in 1968... A man named Dick Kleiner interviewed Sharon Tate and asked if she had ever experienced anything supernatural. And she told Kleiner that one night when she was sleeping in the bedroom where Paul Byrne died, she got a really weird feeling. And she said she saw a ghostly man in her bedroom and realized it was Paul. So she ran out of the bedroom toward the stairs and saw a different ghostly figure tied to the staircase. And she couldn't determine the gender, but she thought it was either her or Jay Sebring. And she also noticed the spirit had a slit throat. So Tate said it was a premonition. And, like, knowing what we know now, it's likely that Paul Byrne's ghost could have visited her as a warning. Because on August 9th, 1969, pregnant Sharon Tate was staying at 150... How do you say it? Silo Drive in Los yeah. Angeles? Uh, which wasn't far from Jay Sebring's home. Sebring and other friends were staying with uh, Sharon Tate while her husband, Roman Polansi- Polanski, worked in London. And that night, Charles Manson sent a group of his followers to break into Sharon's home and kill everyone inside. Correct. Sharon and Jay Sebring included. So on the next day, Charles Manson's followers killed a wealthy couple named Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. So since Jean's death, as well as Jay's, people who have lived in the home afterward claim to have seen the ghosts of both Jean and Paul Byrne. So in 1974, paranormal investigator and popular author Hans Holzer first published a book called um, Haunted Hollywood, and in his research, he visited the home and he spoke to the owners uh, who lived there after J.C. Brain. So according to Hans, the owners of the property at that time experienced this, pa- this paranormal stuff. This is what they said uh-huh. they experienced. So the day before the owners moved into the home in the 70s, let's call them the Smith family. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I don't think their names have ever been released. So Mrs. Smith... Okay went upstairs and her dogs followed her growling and barking at something in the upstairs bedroom um and and like in the hallway right outside the master bedroom mrs smith felt an unseen presence and heard somebody softly whisper in her ear please help me on the smith's first night in the new home they were living in their bed once living in their bed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were sleeping in their bed or like laying there. They were laying there when some unseen heavy object just struck their bed three times. Oh, Oof. some unseen presence wanted to be noticed or like communicate, which is what they like kind of guessed. So Mrs. Smith said to the presence, you're welcome. How do you do? We've got to get some sleep. We're very tired and need to get <laughs> some sleep. So let us be It's kind of nice. That's pretty funny, actually. So the lights in the kitchen would apparently go on and off by themselves. 
And while walking through the living room, Mrs. Smith saw a strange formless light in that, in like an outline kind of form huh. floating above her near the ceiling. In the corner of the living room near the mailbox, Mrs. Smith and her aunt heard like, like heartbreaking sobs of a woman. Uh. And like sometimes a weird and uneasy feeling can overcome a person in the downstairs bathroom. Um, weird. A light knocking at the front door can be heard, but no one is ever there. Cold spots can be felt in the kitchen, the downstairs area, and the upstairs bedroom. Unexplained wind drafts have been felt throughout the house, especially in the kitchen and upstairs bedrooms. And the strong smell of women's perfume can be smelled in the children's bedroom upstairs. Beautiful. So both um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they they say they were warned in a dream of a faulty, dangerous wall light in the upstairs bathroom. Okay. <laughs> so both said they had this dream where they saw a clear vision of the bathtub, like a clear vision of the bathtub full of water and bubbles, and then a hand from the bathtub switches on the light and receives, like, it gets electrocuted and just, like, withers away. <sighs> so out That's of fear... so fucking creepy. Yeah, and they both had this dream. So out of fear, they called an electrician just to, like, check it out. Like, is this light switch okay? And apparently the electrician was horrified that such an outdated, dangerous light switch was in the bathroom and put a safe one in. So it seems like this is, like, the house of warnings. Yeah, right. They're just telling you what's going to happen every single time. Right. Like, to Sharon Tate, to, you know, this couple. What the hell happened? Weird. So as of now, the house is still considered haunted. And it's really weird that, like, all these tragic things happened. Like, that this house was just, like, involved in. Like, you have this tragic Hollywood figure who died at such a young age. Yep. And then her husband, who died tragically in the house. Yep. And then gets taken on by another really tragic Hollywood couple. Yep. With Sharon Tate and Correct. J.C. Bring. And then from there, there's all these different types of paranormal experiences. Um, there isn't a res- like, there isn't really a resolution to this story. But um, one weird thing I didn't mention earlier, but I'm going to mention now, Jean was never a suspect for Paul Burns' murder. Like, I don't think she was even at the house that night. Uh-huh. But there is a theory that Paul was murdered by his abandoned common-law wife <laughs> or ex, Dorothy Millett, um, because the night that Paul Byrne got shot, Dorothy committed suicide by drowning and jumping overboard from the Delta King. So, like, she could have killed him and then killed herself, and that's what some people think happened. Oh. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. Can I just do a quick Polanski? Yeah, tell us what's weird about Polanski, because I don't uh, know. He raped a 13-year-old. What? He raped a 13-year-old girl. Uh, he had a plea bargain that he later pleaded guilty to a lesser offense of unlawful sex with a minor. In 1978, after learning that the judge planned to reject his plea deal and impose a prison term instead of probation, he fled to Paris. A number of women have later accused Polanski of raping them when they were teenagers. An Interpol red notice has been issued for his arrest, and he rarely leaves France. Wait, so he's, like, kind of on the run? Yeah. So this was after Sharon Tate. So what year is Manson? 69. So yeah, it was, like, uh, eight years after. And then... He raped a 13-year-old girl. In 77, and then in 78, uh, he 
he got arrested for it. And he put in a plea bargain, and oh the judge God. rejected the plea bargain and was going to give him a prison sentence, and he fled, and he's been gone since. And in the time since, numerous other women have come forward and accused him of similar things. Wow. Is he still alive? He is, I believe. And just hiding out. In Paris, France. They know where he is. Okay, literally... He's 87, so I thought, you know, that old motherfucker's going to die soon anyway. So. Don't cancel me for saying this, but Charles Manson should have got his ass. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I mean, he, you know... He it should have been him, not Sharon Tate. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I mean, fuck this motherfucker, yeah. Yeah, he sucks. Yeah, yeah. so fuck Roman Polanski. Uh, this was a weird story. The so twist weird. really did get me. I was I'm, like, whoa. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's not like the spookiest story in the world, but it is kind of interesting, like history and like it's bizarre. It's very strange. I really, I really like this one because I don't know. It's yeah, just, I like this one too a lot. I didn't know anything about this. I like the older ones sometimes. And, you know, I really want to go, like, California is a hotbed for freaking haunted shit. Gotta get out there. Yeah. Um, do you know about Coronado Island? I've heard about it. Yeah, that place, I stayed there with my mom and dad. Oh, shit. And it's said to be very haunted. And then there's, um... Did you feel haunted presence? No. <laughs> Actually, oh, okay. I didn't at all. Shit. Well, there's, like, different parts of Coronado Hotel, and I don't think we were staying in the part that was haunted. I don't right. know. There's, like, different buildings. But, yeah. um... And then there's the Winchester Mystery House that we did. Oh, yeah? Um, we did an episode on yes where she wouldn't stop building yep because a ghost told her to and i think that one's in california too yeah we should go yeah there's a ton we should go i'm down hell yeah brother hell yeah all right um i hope everyone had a great fourth of july we're filming this on the thursday filming <laughs> we're recording this on the um thursday before so we still have a lot Damn, we had such a sick 4th of July. Yeah, it was so fun. Okay, wait, Manifesting wait. it. I'm, I'm going to stop my uh, chair from squeaking. I know you say manifesting, but I considered it jinxing. I'm claiming. I'm claiming Because like, now it. I'm like, what if we don't have a good 4th of July? What does that <laughs> and mean, we look though? back and we're like, oh, damn. I don't know. What if like we get in a enough, car accident Enough, on the enough. Way don't, don't put that kind of shit in the universe. <laughs> we're going to have a great time. <laughs> We're going to have fun. We're going to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> and All it's right. going to be fun. Um, yeah, rate and review. And um, um, what else do you need to do? Join the Spooky Show live event. It'll all be in the show notes. Where to follow Harrison and me is in the show notes. Um, and have the best week of your entire life. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>